Hello and welcome to Criterion. Close up. I'm Mark Herney here with Aaron West for Criterion Close Up episode number 50. Bonjour. Another anniversary. <laughs> Comment ça va? <laughs> uh, oui. Yeah. Ça va? Uh, un, deux, trois, quatre, cinq, six, sept, huit, neuf, dix. That's all you have? That's about all I got right now. Un peu. <laughs> uh, yep. We are episode uh, 50. Uh, cinq, uh, quant? Is that it? I don't know. Cinquante? Cinq... Oh, that, sound, that sounds right. I, I think yeah. I, I know one to 20. I could count one to 20, but <laughs> picking numbers, I'm not so good. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good, Aaron. Very, very nice. Well, we are, of course, I'm Mark Herney here with Aaron West, and we are finally delving into the series that we've been talking about for a while, the French 1930 series. I'm very excited about this. This mm-hmm. is uh, going to be a, a lot of fun. So we, we're going to be doing this over uh, seven episodes and really breaking up the, uh, you know, kind of by movement director, um, mostly by director, but we're, we're kind of intro the series. Um, this time we'll, we'll give some some really good uh, background information so looking forward to uh, to doing this any any initial thoughts Aaron uh, sure well I, I guess one thing is for people that are uninitiated or don't really know this period you don't really need to go and watch every single uh, Renoir or Claire Bernard I mean, you can if you want film. to you know because we'll, can we'll, we'll, we'll be impressed by your dedication if you do but <laughs> absolutely uh, but so we're not going to get in we're not going to do deep film analysis like we usually do it's more going to be about historical uh, and and pretty much contextualizing all these really this movement of 1930s French filmmakers. Um, and really, poetic realism is a big part of that. So yeah, I just enjoy the ride, and we will have film recommendations on each episode. So if you want to listen and then watch a, a movie or two or five, uh, we'll have that for you. Yeah. Nice. Yep. And I guess we should say that our, our episodes will be uh, split up. Uh, there'll be an early Renoir, then there'll be a René Claire, Raymond Bernard, Marcel Pagnol, uh, then uh, Sacha Guitry, Jean Grimillon, and uh, then... Julien de Vivier, mm-hmm. and then Late Renoir, and then Marcel Carnet. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So the, those are all the names. Lots uh, lots in the collection. We'll get into that. And some Eclipse series you can check out if you happen to have them, or if you don't, mm-hmm. maybe your library does. So a lot of good viewing you can have. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of great films from this period. So yeah. uh, and we've been prepping this for about a month, and I think we've conceived it about maybe six, seven months ago. It's <laughs> That's been on right. our, on our right. mind for a while. So Yeah. Uh, nice to, to finally get into it. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, yeah, we'll be hitting it, you know, on a on a monthly basis. So we will be having other, uh, you know, films we'll be talking about, other episodes upcoming. Of course, you know, we've got sure. horror coming in October. So, but we're gonna keep coming back. This will be our the backbone of our show for for a little while. So that's right. I don't know the word for horror in France, uh, in French. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> what are you? I have no idea. I'm gonna make yeah, up a word. So, yeah. <laughs> but we wanted to uh, just a, a little dedication too uh, for really kicking off this series Aaron yeah and and this is a little a bit of a somber note but uh when we first conceived this episode I actually had reached out to a good friend of mine who's who's a a massive film nut and he's seen thousands and thousands of films uh he he lived in the UK so he uh had access to a lot more than we have here just because you know he's across uh, the channel from France uh his name was Alan Fish uh great friend and so he had pretty much agreed to fact check uh, and kind of bounce ideas he he's a guy that would send me uh, in fact I, a lot of my film f- film library upstairs uh, is thanks to him mm-hmm. he would say oh this uh, this Duvivier is uh, on sale from Amazon France French uh, so anyway that was about six seven months ago and uh, 
he uh, recently passed away at uh, age 43, which is mm. pretty scary. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, cancer's rough. Yeah. So, and that that was pretty tough. Uh, just not just for for me, uh, you know, as, as he's a, a friend. I never actually met him, but we had corresponded for a few years. Yeah. He was online kind of like a mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, kind of like yours truly. Exactly. <laughs> but. Uh, but but we also connected and we had similar interests and and, uh, and actually when I was going through my surgery he had fought and beat cancer a few years ago so he actually kind of helped me through that too so uh, really good guy really tragic passing so uh, so we just for him uh, we wanted to dedicate the the series to him absolutely and actually he's going to contribute because he wrote this massive tome of uh, I, I I don't know how many words but it's uh, probably. 10,000 pages, or probably 1,000 pages, 10,000 would be a lot. <laughs> so he, he, for 10 years, he'd been writing this book just of, uh, of various uh, f- films. And in fact, I've already collected a few few of his comments about uh, co- films we were going to cover from this episode. So Excellent. I'll kind of sprinkle those in here and there. Uh, and he, he gave that to his closest friends just so that you know, his cinephile legacy would remain uh, intact. So, That's really nice. Yeah. So yeah, this is for you, Alan. Uh Drinking a pint for you, buddy. <laughs> That's right. Nice, Aaron. And uh, we also want to thank uh, someone that you had met in uh, in Canada. It's been really uh, in- instrumental for some of our research. Yeah, and that, that is Christopher Faulkner, who is a uh, French uh, 30s scholar. Uh, he pretty much dedicated his academic life to it. Uh, he's done a lot of Renoir. Um, actually, we talked about him. He's been on a lot of supplements on the Criterion Collection. Yeah. So. Yeah, we we did hit it off, and uh, he's a really great guy, and we had a really nice dinner there in uh, Ottawa, and we've kept in touch, and I've kind of bounced off uh, our plans for the series, and he's given me a whole lot. I, I thought I knew a lot about 30s French cinema, which I, I know a little bit, <laughs> but uh, he he was able to give me a, a ton more that uh, uh, some that can't even get into here because the films are impossible to find. Yeah, but, uh, it's tough. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. so a lot of uh, what we kind of uh, developed here has come from him. Uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah, thanks, thank Chris. You. Yeah, I, I was looking yeah. at some, because I, I hadn't seen, I haven't spent a lot of time on Renoir, so I have seen Boudou, but yeah, between Boudou, A Day in the Country he's on, La Chienne, mm-hmm. uh, even the, the Renoir set, the stage and spectacle set, he's got some essays, so he's, we'll, we'll be uh, hearing a lot from Chris. Uh, we will Renoir talk about episodes. him <laughs> plenty, yes. Uh, Chris will be here uh, in many, many ways. That's so. right. So, very cool. And, uh, you know, lastly, just uh, really for our intro is uh, just a disclaimer that we <laughs> we are not French. Uh, we're not French-Canadian. We're not French people. But, you know, we, we do try our best. So as far as pronunciation goes, uh, we will do our best. We are Americans. But, uh, Je ne sais pas, parle français. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll do our best. But, you know, feel free to uh, correct us. Uh, I know mm-hmm. uh, Guillaume probably will. And, he, uh, I, I already t- told him he can't. Oh, he can't. Okay. <laughs> he, he respected that. Yeah. So he, he's backing <laughs> off. Um, Thanks, yeah. Gail. We're, we're going to butcher the French language. Uh, in fact, I just, in my notes, I have a lot of names that I'm thinking, oh, how am I going to pronounce that? I, yeah. Uh, yeah. So please uh, be easy on us. We're uh, If we butcher something, you're welcome to correct us, but, you know, don't attack it, us. It's already there. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, it also we do we're doing some research, some reading, some watching, uh, but we will make some, some mistakes. So if you have right. some feedback you want to send us, uh, feel free to send a correction via email, uh, yep. feedback at criterioncloseup.com or, you know, the social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we're 
definitely open to that. So recovering a lot. So I've been a fan of this for a long time, but I've found as we kind of go down the rabbit hole that there's so much, you know, you don't know. So, uh, so yeah, we, we're going to, a lot of this we're kind of learning as we go too. And, uh, so kind of like you, you prep for a class, you can't prep, prep everything. Everything. So anyway, and and even if people have things to add, I would love to hear a little further context uh, that people can bring. Yeah. I'm sure there's some things we, you know, just you know, will have missed or, you know, will be so, an in- interesting tidbit. So would love to hear it and you know, love to hear your feedback if you're following along, um, you know, with yeah. any reading, watching that you're doing, you know, let us know how it, uh, how it went for you. So, mm-hmm. oh, and we should also mention Scott Nye is on, on this first episode, but he's not here with us yet. We'll bring him in, uh, in a, in a couple segments. So, um, yeah. so welcome Scott, even yeah. though you're not here yet. Welcome <laughs> Scott from Criterion Cast. We talked with mm-hmm. him before. Let's see, we did a, a brighter summer day with Scott and, of course, uh, some other Criterion cast episodes. So, yeah. Shall we kick it into high gear? Let's get into some French cinema. Let's do it. We'll take a, a short little musical break and come back with an overview of French 1930s film. So here we go, Aaron. Uh, French 1930s film. Uh, let's delve into it. We want to give some, as we always do, a little context to this, and we're going to talk about the uh, the directors, but uh, we might as well talk a bit about history and politics yeah. in the 1930s. It's a big part of uh, what we're doing here, and it'll come up throughout. Uh, yeah, so uh, 1930s politics, um, it kind of mimics a lot of uh, the global politics in a way. Uh, of course, it was a really tumultuous uh, decade, um, and in the years prior and and after, of course, uh, the the big big uh, moments were the Great War and the Second Great War, or <laughs> World War One, World War Two, as right. they're often called. So yeah, they were sort of on the on the heels, recovering from uh, the First World War, which is you know was brutal, basically a war of attrition, a lot of lives lost, and uh, and then the. Later, there would be the run-up into um, into the Second World War with uh, Nazism, fascism, and uh, so yeah, that that of course is going to be coming up quite a bit. Uh, there was also they were in the the post-Bolshevik world, so the uh, the the Russian Revolution had taken place, and uh, and the, the Red Army had uh, had conquered Russia. So in fact, uh, when we get into the silent films, we'll talk about how some of those Russian uh, filmmakers had emigrated to France as well and, and contributed to this. So, um, and that also informed French political uh, uh, philosophy during the 1930s. There was a uh, a lot of uh, leftism, and actually, there was a lot of there's a left. Pretty much everybody was on extremes. Uh, yeah, there was far left, extreme far left. You know, socialism. Uh, there, we'll talk about Leon Blum was a, a socialist president and the the Popular Front. We'll get into all that. And then there's also a right-wing um, uh, movement that, you know, people almost almost to the extent of fascism that it did exist in France. And then on top of all that, uh, and, you know, that's unpleasant enough, we had economic problems. Uh, people probably know that uh, 1929 was Black Friday here in, uh, in the States and uh, right. kicked off a Great Depression. And so that actually, kind of like 2008 uh, in that little depression, uh, that hit uh, international internationally and um so that it really hit uh, france in 1932 and so uh what actually happened is the studios struggled they um 
uh, Gamont, uh, Pafé, and Eclair were the, the main ones. And so even though this is such a, a tremendous uh, period of uh, filmmaking history or film history, uh, it, the, it, a lot of this was on a shoestring budget. Some projects were made in other countries because just the France didn't have the money to, um, to, to keep up with uh, this, this uh, movement, I guess. Yeah, sure. Uh, and it and it was a hotbed of cinema during this decade. Uh, you know, there are a lot of high quality productions, a lot of talent, uh, a lot of uh, uh, different aesthetics, and we won't co- cover all of them, of course. Um, but there was we're going to talk about realism and uh, a lot of the maybe some the theatrical elements. But there was all sorts. There was there were musicals, there were comedies, uh, a lot of films being made in the '30s. Uh, so anyway, there's a certain type of film that uh, that lasted, and uh, we'll get into that. Cool. So, you know, little little history there. Uh, we wanted to mention, we're not going to talk about all their films right now, but the, the Big Five, or Les Grandes, as I heard it uh, mentioned, <laughs> of the, uh, the directors. So, um, and these are ones we are going to be covering in varying degrees. We do have uh, episodes dedicated to all of them, except for one um, in, in total. Of course, we're mm-hmm. doing Fader, but um, Marcel Carnet, uh, he has a number of films in the collection, uh, some, well, a couple of them out of print, Port of Shadows and Le Jeu Celeve uh, in the 1930s. And then um, later, and the reason we're covering him later is he has Children of Paradise and uh, Les Visiteurs du Soir um, mm-hmm. in the 40s. So, and uh, another of the big five, Renee Claire, we'll be doing later with, uh, he has Under the Roof, uh, the Roofs of Paris, uh, A New La Liberté, and Le Million, which are all, that's all uh, early 30s. And mm-hmm. it, again, in the collection, uh, he has I Married a Witch from uh, 42. And right, that's American, though. <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs> Good point. Good point. It isn't in the collection, but yeah. He, right. he'll, he's connected to the silent area. We're, we'll get into that. But, um, and we have uh, Julien de Vivier. We'll be de- dedicating an episode to uh, Pepe Lamoco. That's thirty-seven, and a number of films in the uh, Eclipse series. So we'll touch on that. And Jacques Fader. Uh, the reason we're talking about well, he's one of the big five, and he doesn't have any in the collection currently, uh, at mm-hmm. least for a physical release. There is uh, Carnival in Flanders and Night Without Armor. Uh, the latter, of which is not very well known, uh, as I understand, or not as well known, but um, those are currently on Hulu, and uh, Fader does have a, a phantom page, so we, you know, figure probably something is coming at some point. And uh, we all, there is also Le Grand Jeu, which we'll talk about, um, that uh, is on a Masters of Cinema DVD. And, of course, uh, the big Jean Renoir, who we will be talking about in two episodes, early and late. <laughs> yes, so. he, he's the one guy that deserves uh, two episodes. Um, yeah, absolutely. A lot, lot, of, lot of production there. Yeah, what's interesting, uh, the big five, and I, I can't even remember who uh, came up with that term or who categorized them, because as we're going to see, there, there are more than five filmmakers that right. were prominent. Um, and, in fact, you could say that Fader is not as remembered as well today as some of the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he deserves to be covered. Uh, but yeah, they, but Absolutely. they all are—they all have connections to poetic realism, and uh, they uh, four of them worked in the silent era. It's really only Carnet that uh, that did not, and he actually he, he worked later, uh, at, around the mid midpoint of the decade, and then uh, into the into and through the war. Uh, so 
Yeah, so anyway, these are often considered kind of the titans of poetic realism, but that's sort of a a misnomer, Mm -hmm. which I guess kind of leads to our uh, next little topic. Uh, Poetic realism is probably the movement that is the most... uh, celebrated of uh, of all the French 1930s. Mostly when people now think of French 1930s, they think of poetic realism. Sure. And uh, do you want to talk about that or? It's, go for it. Uh, sure. <laughs> well, uh, poetic realism is, is sort of a, a certain aesthetic, uh, it, and we're, we're going to get into the sound part, but it's it, it found its, uh, its footing once uh, the sound film came uh, be, really became situated in around 1934. So it's uh, its origins were in literature. Uh, Emile Zola is a big one, uh, Balzac, uh, some others. Um, and so th- th- these people, uh, these authors sort of uh, portrayed the lower classes and uh, and that um, that informed the films. Uh, in fact, a lot of the screenwriters that would become would become associated with this movement. Uh, Charles Spack is a big one. He wrote mm-hmm. Grand Illusion and, and a lot of many other topic or films. In fact, some we'll cover here in a, in a segment coming up. Yep. Uh, also, uh, Jacques Prévert, uh, who is um, who worked with Claire. Uh, I'm sorry, worked with Carnet, <laughs> and and plenty of others too. Uh, so it became sort of a movement, but again, like like uh, most movements, it wasn't really called that at the moment. It was right. la- labeled that later, later. as people tried yeah. to categorize these. Uh, but but there was a distinct realist voice. Uh, in fact, uh, and th- this is thanks to Chris Faulkner, he, he pointed out that there were some um, early short films in the 30s that uh, were kind of planted. Uh, Le Petit uh, Métier. De Paris, uh, P- uh, Pierre Chanel. It's pretty good, man. Nice work. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's so good. <laughs> uh, Pierre Chanel is, is somebody who is basically, you, you basically can't find his work. You, you can find some French DVDs, but uh, he's pretty much forgotten, but he was a key figure in poetic realism. I, and this short, I, I couldn't find it anywhere. I'd love to watch it. Um, and then there's uh, La Zone by uh, Georges uh, Lacombe. And uh, and then Carnet's first film, uh, Nogent, no and then... Mm-hmm. Nogent, uh, and oh, I'm sorry. His first film is uh, El Dorado du Dimanche, and uh, and again, the screenwriters were Prevert, Spack were the the big ones. But um, so anyway, they what, what they tried to focus on was the working class, the, the proletariat, uh, the, the everyman. Uh, ma- that made these films very easily identifiable. Uh, people could uh, people struggling from the uh, economic problems could. Um, could identify with them. And it's sort of a bittersweet, sort of a romanticism. It's sort of lyrical. Uh, mm. Sometimes things, you know, sometimes people die in the end. Uh, we won't say which films, but uh, <laughs> that happens. Uh, yeah, a little, little, little tragic. Yeah. And, it it, it and certainly it, informed uh, the Italian neorealism later. Um, so it's uh, an influence there on another country's there's actu- films. There's actually a through line uh, from uh, poetic realism to uh, neorealism. Neorealism. So, um, and yeah, it, it was uh, inspired by a lot of, um, you know, expre- German expressionism was a big one. Uh, Kammerspiel film, and that's uh, you know like uh, some Meyer, like the Last Laugh, um, is Murnau and, and Meyer wrote that. Mm. Uh, some other films too, actually American films influenced it. Uh, uh, von Sternberg and like The Docks of New York. Uh, Renoir was a huge fan of that. Uh, actually, D.W. Griffith, uh, Renoir was a fan of his as well. Even though you, you wouldn't really think of, you know, especially Birth of a Nation, right? Don't really make realism. that connection normally, but yeah, 
not really poetic either, but I think that was more of a technique. Uh, so, hmm. and then yeah, subsequently realism influenced uh, Italian neorealism, and that's basically where they just use amateur actors. And it's pretty similar, actually. If you look at a movie like Tony, uh, it basically is a neorealism movie. Hmm. Um, and then it also influenced uh, film noir too. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, Chiaroscuro kind of lighting, um, especially Carnet's films. Uh, you mm. could you can see in, and there's kind of a connection with expressionism to realism to noir too. Um, so yeah, it's a big deal. And uh, yeah, I I think to kind of lead us into our, our next segments, uh, sound to sound cinema, we wanted to talk a little bit about the um, it's a center of film away from Hollywood, right? So. Um, it kind of became a, a new international uh, center of film due to the, the quality of the product. I, I know um, you had mentioned, Aaron, how the uh, after World War I, that it was a difficult time for uh, French cinema, and there was a lot of uh, importation of films. I mean, you still had, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Pathé and Galmont that were the, the film uh, companies that were producing films, but they were showing a lot of, uh, a lot of Hollywood films. And so it, this did become... Uh, from uh, the 1930s French cinema, uh, more of a new international center. So they went mm-hmm. to the foreign filmmakers, went to France uh, to make uh, films, um, which is, you know, if you're importing people, that's a, that's a good sign. And some of them uh, European and some, you know, from American, Russia. So it became a, mm-hmm. a new, new film center, so to speak. Yeah, sort of. Uh, what's interesting is the, the studio still struggled. So even yeah. though it, it was it was like a cultural center, I think, Again, based on, like you said, based on the quality of the product, uh, such great films were coming out and they were being recognized. And so people were moving to France to make them. Also political reasons as well. People were trying to escape uh, the, um, the the tide of Nazism. So uh, sure. a lot of people, uh, and again, the Russian emigres, that's a big big part of it. Uh, Anatole Litvak, who uh, eventually worked in Hollywood, he made uh, he made a Marling in France, which is a great movie, mm. and actually kind of reminiscent of uh, poetic realism as well. Yeah, out of print, yeah, I think, uh, from uh, Criterion, but yep. right, it was on, on the Essential Art House. Um, yep. And then uh, Seidmack, uh, Robert Seidmack, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but um, and then Douglas Sirk had come over here, and then uh, technicians like uh, Kurt Courant. So. Uh, uh, plenty, uh, lots of other people. Oh, Max Ophuls too is a big one. Uh, yep. You know, he he's almost considered a French filmmaker because he made so many films in France. Yeah, um, I think of him before. that way a lot of times. Yeah, right. But he's German. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe he's German. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was a it was a kind of a hotbed of cinema, and and actually we probably should mention some of the the acting talent as well. Uh, you know, a lot of people, as uh, sound became prominent, uh, you and the star system in Hollywood was um, taking taking shape. Uh, you had some stars. Um, arriving in France and I think we're going to a lot of these people will, will keep coming up in our, our series as we go go on so um, you, you want to name the biggest one get him out of the way <laughs> Jean Gabin <laughs> yes yeah yeah he's <laughs> he, he, he's all over the place he, if you look at it, there's a there's a poetic poetic realism page for uh, from the Criterion site and I think his face is on almost every film so <laughs> hey you know he he works with so many different directors but right he kind of had a knack for just getting in front of the camera of these prominent uh, 30s films uh, from different directors, you know, from Grimion to Dubier and, of course, Renoir and others as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of has that, uh, you know, he's a handsome guy, kind of has that uh, masculine, uh, um, you know, he, he was a stocky guy, I should say. So, you know, like for Le, Le Bête Humaine, 
He right. uh, he, uh, wait, uh, more of a working class. Uh, he, he could embody that role, but he could also play like a soldier in Grand Illusion. So, um, and then uh, there was of course uh, Michelle Simone, who we'll talk about later. It was in uh, a Jean Vigo film. It was in some uh, Renoir films. Uh, tremendous actor. Kept working. Uh, there was actually Arletti, who had become uh, known as being um, uh, one of Carnet's primary actresses, but she did plenty of other stuff. I'm sure you've seen her. Ha- mm-hmm. Actually, contra- controversial figure because she married a German, uh, or had an affair with a German, I believe it was, and um, that was during the war. That was not very, um, that was kind of um, not frowned upon. There was a movie where that happened. What was that movie? I don't know. Yeah, there was a movie where somebody... Oh, no, it was Hiroshima Monomore. Remember, she had oh, that's flashbacks. Right. Yep, yeah, yep, of yep. course. So, Arletti, mm-hmm. yeah. And then there were others. Uh, do, do you know of some others, or do you want me to keep going? Well, there was... The, the ones that come to mind, these are ones that uh, I, you know, had come up in some of the films that I had uh, seen, where uh, Jacques Fader had married um, Francoise Rosé, um, right. And then she she was uh, I, I believe she had her start really in theater and uh, mm-hmm. came into film and of course uh, starred in a number of his films uh, that we'll talk about like uh, Carnival in Flanders and uh, Le Grand Jeu. Um, also notice the there was a Delphine who was uh, he played the dwarf in Carnival in Flanders and is also the headmaster in Zero de Conduit the Jean Vigo mm-hmm. film. Um, yeah, little connection there. Yeah, well, there's there there are a lot of stars, and and uh, there was um, Chevalier who become known known for American film, but he did a lot of uh, you know musical and comedies, which of course those aren't really part of what we're going to talk about, but they existed. Uh, same with uh, Fernandel, uh, who he was in uh, dance program of De Vivier, but and pr- that's probably the only film that we'll cover that where he was. But he he was a major star though, um, but a more, more mostly a comic actor. Um, right. But uh, people we'll, we'll talk about, uh, of course, Harry Bauer is a mm-hmm. huge one. He he was in some De Vivier films, was in, uh, he, uh, notably, Les Miserables. Les Miserables, of course. Yep. Uh, Thinking of uh, Les Miserables, Charles uh, Vanel is in that. Of course, he's in some later French films, you know, like yep. um, the Clouseau films, Wages of Fear and Diabolique, but he's also in uh, Le Grand Jeu, so that was a familiar face. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, Rene Lefebvre. Uh, I, I think I did that one poorly. Uh, there's Simone, Simone, which is, a, a, again, a tough one. Uh, Michelle Morgan, who uh, kind of came to be in the later part, latter part of the decade, uh, Port of Shadows, but kept on working. Uh, and there's uh, Pierre Fresnay. Uh, he was Baudou in um, Grand Illusion. Hmm. Uh, then, da- speaking of... Um, uh, Max Ophels, there was Danielle Derieu. Um, she worked in the 30s and then later would uh, work with uh, Ophels quite a bit, uh, the mat, uh, earrings of Madame De. And then uh, well, there's Charles Boyer, Pierre Blanchard. Uh, what was the... Yeah, there, there's a whole, lot, <laughs> a whole lot of actors. We'll talk about them. I, I, just listing them off doesn't really do them justice. Right, but, uh, yeah. yeah just a, lot of, a lot of talent. Giving a quick overview and yeah like you said well they will come to play in uh, the films that we're talking about later so yeah but yeah G- gabine simone and arletti i think are the, the big ones and the they'll big, come up the big but, three <laughs> the big three they'll come up time and time again and and bauer too is going to come up a lot right yeah, excellent actor so cool well, well yeah that's uh the overview and uh, we'll get in deeper nice yeah it sounds good we, we're gonna bring in scott for our next uh 
segment uh, where we're talking about the silent films and then into the sound cinema in the 1930s. So we'll take a quick break and come right back. Welcome back to Criterion Close-Up. I'm Mark Kearney here with Aaron West, and we want to welcome our special guest for our first French series episode from the 1930s. Uh, Scott, you weren't alive in the, the 1930s, but uh, you are alive in, the, in 2016 to talk to us about these movies. So welcome, Scott and I, from Criterion Cast. Thanks hey, for Scott. having me. I do feel alive and present. Yes. <laughs> for the record, we were all uh, not alive in the 30s. <laughs> Almost... <laughs> I, I think uh, I, I don't know with your with your knowledge, Aaron. I think maybe you were alive, like you were an animal back then. You've been reincarnated as uh, Aaron West. But, uh, uh, maybe uh, it was a past life. Maybe maybe just a I, theory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe some. I'm, my, my past life was just some guy that read a lot of French books and watched a lot of French <laughs> movies. So I um, uh, wish I could be that guy. Oh, nice. But, I think you uh, are yeah. that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be that guy. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, our French series, we're talking about the silent to the sound cinema in this segment before we get into a couple of the directors, uh, Fader and Vigo. Uh, and again, welcome, Scott. We wanted to talk a little bit about the silent film Golden Age at this point. So I'll turn it to you, Scott, to uh, lead us into this. Yeah, I mean, these are not films that I have a, a tremendous degree of familiarity with, but it's definitely uh, an important uh, sort of ramp up to what mm -hmm. we're talking about in general in terms of getting into the 30s and sort of reestablishing French cinema as a realist cinema. Because when you think about it, you know, the very beginnings of cinema were French realist cinemas, you know, images of trains arriving at stations or just, sure. you know, common depictions of life. And so this has always been, I think, an important component to French cinema. And you could see it kind of get away from that maybe in the Georges Méliès stuff in the teens, mm -hmm. which was completely fantastical and had no relation to reality at all. Uh, but then you see sort of a, a refocus in the 1920s, I think, with uh, filmmakers like Abel Gans, uh, Jean Epstein, uh, Germain Duloc, uh, Marcel Lepierre, uh, Louis Duloc, and uh, Jean Renoir once he kind of started ramping up. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, each of them sort of brought, a, I think, a real poetic dimension. I never thought of these as particularly realist uh, filmmakers as such, mm. but like I said, my familiarity with their direct work is... A little on the low side, so I'm sure some more uh, expert scholars can correct me, but they kind of brought a, a certain avant-garde edge to them, and there's been a debate whether or not this was, in fact, really a total movement, uh, and I think kind of rightly so, because these are fairly diverse filmmakers. Uh, you also have uh, Louis Fillard in here, who made, like, and especially in the teens, these kind of, like, spy, caper kind of mm -hmm. things, which had a sort of realist dimension, but were essentially escapist entertainment, were kind of the television of their day. Uh, and then, you know, you get to a guy like John Epstein, who, whose films were, in, in a sense, realist and certainly had the kind of dourness with which we associate sort of uh, the Italian new realism cinema. Uh, but in their actual experiential qualities, are they feel sort of fantastical and very, like, introspective and very focused on sort of the way we process the world around us and not so much you know, just trying to depict that world. So I think I think there's a real kind of dynamic dimension there that might not be clear if you just approach it as a realist movement. And I think Impressionism 
is more on point, uh, especially by the time you get to Renoir. Uh, but yeah, I, do you guys have any direct experience with these films? That it, can you counter anything I've said? <laughs> Not so much. I, I Again, this isn't the purview of this, uh, these, this series, but it is important because this you know, sound film came out of silent film, and a lot of these directors, as we mentioned in the prior segment, four of the big five worked in silent film, uh, you know, kind of concurrently with this uh, this movement. And yeah, movement is a loose term. You know, again, that's, this is something that was put in, this term was put together later. You know, these people weren't like, okay, well, we're going to be imp- express- or impressionists. And, right. and they were just making films that were their tastes. But um, I, I do think that there is a, a certain avant-garde uh, and I think with silent film, that was easier to uh, accomplish than with sound, uh, because maybe not easier, but they it kind of lends itself to experimentation. You, you don't have the direct sound or to get in the way of uh, editing or uh, using images to and, and sound and score to um, to evoke a certain feel and aesthetic. I mean, I, there's a lot of heavy focus on mise en scene um, or messy scene as my friends from wrong would say um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it. It, it it could get into the magical worlds as you said scott uh and and of course when sound came in, into play it transformed everything because people didn't want these avant-garde uh you know almost cerebral films they wanted the stuff that was they wanted the dramas they wanted the literature mm-hmm. they wanted zola and balzac and and uh, pagnol and that sort of thing so so yeah, I think that's why they're, all the for the French silent films, even though they were kind of all over the place, once the talkies arrived, everything kind of went to a standstill. And I think it's also worth mentioning the Surrealists as well. Do, we, do you think, Mark? Yeah, so um, you know, you, you mentioned the, um, um, the, the Surrealists. We have uh, Louis Bunuel, uh, Salvador Dali, of course, uh, Jean Cocteau, um, Germain Dulac, who's you know a little harder to to find, but um, yeah, I mean surrealism in, in literature and, and painting. I think there's a, you know you have kind of a there isn't. I mean it's obviously an influence, especially on someone like Vigo, who we're going to be talking about, but um, a bit more focus on dream thought, uh, kind of anti narrative, mm-hmm. uh, less about a causality, maybe even um, you know attacking cause causality. And there's a, a lack of narrative logic. And uh, a part that I think is influences uh, one of the films, Carnival in Flanders, is even the sexual desire and fantasy you'll find in uh, surrealist films. So you see um, that uh, specifically. So, in the, you know, there are some... Um, we're missing a lot of uh, Boonwell, unfortunately, in the collection. Um, there's a lot of gone gone out of print, but there mm-hmm. is, um, you know, Ancien uh, Landelou, if I'm pronouncing that correct, the, the early film <laughs> uh, with Boonwell and uh, Dolly that is uh, so important for um, this movement. And, of course, some of the Cocteau is uh, still available. A lot still of a available. poet, yeah. yeah. Uh, by the way, Duloc, uh, you can find a lot of that on um, YouTube, so uh, some short films. So I watched... Uh, uh, the clergyman, I forget the full title, but that was uh, that was interesting. Uh, uh, but again, very avant-garde, very surrealistic. And actually, if you've seen Unshin Andalou, Dulac is you know it's not the same type of film, but it's not too far apart. So uh, yeah, you can see that they're from the same family. Sure. Yeah. Hard to find, but uh, yeah, a, a short film. I think I tried to find. It. I think the only place you can actually see it is uh, is on on YouTube. Yep. So. Uh, speaking and, uh, of, oh no, go ahead. No, go ahead, Scott. 
well, I, before we get out of the silence, I definitely wanted to, and speaking of that kind of hard to find this, uh, it seems to me that there aren't as many like kind of standout uh, French silent films, despite it being kind of a major industry. When you think of silent films, you know, it's mostly U.S. and Germany. I wondered if you guys kind of had any thoughts as to why that might be. Well, Flickr Alley has has done some to bring uh, some of them back. Uh, in fact, they had that French emigre se- or the Russian emigre series, which um, had a fader on there and some others. Uh, yeah, German expressionism, of course, that's one of the major silent film movements uh, everywhere. It's influenced uh, everything. So, um, so I can see that, and, and those sell, you know, Metropolis, Murnau, Lang, all those sell uh, a lot of discs. Um, yeah, I think. A lot of these avant-garde people might be a little too too much for modern audiences, and so yeah, a lot of I, well, I think Gantz is the uh, the exception, and we know that um, Napoleon is coming out on BFI, and I imagine you know, given once they work out the the soundtrack issues, it'll come out here in the states as well. But um, but yeah, I, I just think it's a little too out there and not um, not as popular. So yeah, and, and uh, Fulcher Alley also had uh, Lerbier's, um uh, Lynn Humane, I'm probably getting these so <laughs> terrible. It, it's tough. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So yeah, it's a good question, uh, and and some are, are just lost too. So, and not just not on DVD, but just lost. Period. In fact, there's a couple I'll mention later that are that we're we can't find anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, and you mentioned Aaron the you know German expressionism, expressionism of course, from the uh, the twenties and some of the films that. Um, you know, you could see influencing, of course, Doctor the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari, uh, maybe Nosferatu, and even the Lang film uh, Le, uh, Nibelungen. And you know, you've got the the look of the distorted shapes, kind of exaggerated movements. Um, you know, I, heavy makeup. Even I, I don't know if there's a huge influence on this period, but yeah, I think you can see some of it. Um, with the um, you know the the background and the characters in that particular space, I mean we mentioned uh, mise en scène, so it's mm-hmm. a very uh, production designer uh, heavy uh, yeah. era in the German expressionism. And and also I I, I think we teased the uh, Russian emigres, but we really didn't get into them, and, and it's really difficult to get into them because so few of, of those are available. But I think that's actually an important uh, element as well. Um, uh, Kirsanov is, is somebody that uh, actually Chris recommended. Uh, of course, I couldn't find it, but but with the, with the Bolshevik re- Revolution, uh, they you know there's they had their feelings about property, and so you filmmakers couldn't keep their equipment basically unless they left with it. Uh, and then also intellectual mm-hmm. property. So a lot of uh, Russians um, uh, emigrated to France in the mid-20s and began making films there. Uh, and I'm not going to mention the names. I, I haven't seen many. Um, I, I don't know about you guys. But but they basically took up the French Impressionist style as well. So um, And then some of the, some French, uh, uh, Russian filmmakers actually would have an impact later. I, I mentioned Litvak, who went to America and did Merling. Um and I'm sure there's some others I'm forgetting off the top of my head. Do you know of any, Scott? Uh, yeah, I was just trying to look up the filmmaker's name, but that House of Mystery kind of serial that uh, Flickr Alley put out. Oh, Flickr Alley. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, da, 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 if only I could remember who made it. But anyway, it was <laughs> made by a Russian immigrant who was a uh, writer, director, actor, which was uh, outside of like comedy. You don't really think of that as being like a strong dramatic uh, thing at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's a really excellent series, and I highly recommend people pick it up. 
And I, I also read that the the Russians didn't just choose to be impressionists. They just uh, and, and didn't. It's not like they brought their own style, I, but they just were kind of all over the map. But most of them gravitated towards the impressionist um, type mm. of uh, aesthetic. So. Yeah, interesting, but a lot of those are lost or forgotten. Um, and again, Flickr Alley, we're getting a lot of love here, but they have that Russian set. Is I, I highly recommend getting that. Um, they were good movies. The ones nice. I've seen. Yeah, another uh, DVD only set, I think, from them. Right, you know, right. Still, still in print, uh, available. Yeah. I mean, a couple other influences too. Uh, as we were, you know, talking about the episode, we've there's the uh, montage from uh, Russian cinema, which is. You know, more based on assembly and editing, um, which the you know the montage film relies on, and we we did we do see that some in this particular movement, um, and there is a, I believe it was Eisenstein that talked about that you know motion montage is it's an an idea that arises from the collision of independent shots. He said, mm-hmm. um, so you know I I think that. That certainly informs this this era. I mean, uh, when you're talking about uh, editing uh, specifically, and um, so certainly an influence influence on Hollywood too. I mean, Hollywood used uh, fast cutting and uh, close framing, and I, mm-hmm. th- you know, again, that combination of shots. I think you do see, um, you know, during the, these French films. Yeah, and I, I did bring up uh, the montage to Chris uh, Faulkner, and he um, he said that it, it was an influence, but less so than say ex- expressionism or surrealism. And sure. then, and of course, uh, Kino I or Cine I, which is basically Vertov, uh, that was influential a little bit. But uh, as far as the sound filmmakers, I think mostly Vigo, which of course we'll talk about soon. Yeah. So then we had uh, the the talkies arrive. <laughs> <laughs> the talkies had a, a immediate uh, transformation there. Yeah, uh, you heard about a film called The Jazz Singer? <laughs> hmm. um, yeah. 1929, uh, a guy sings a little bit and pretty much rocks uh, the cinematic world. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that was a major transformation from in from French film, uh, from universal film all over the, the globe. Uh, jazz singer and all the films, the sound films that followed uh, became kind of a watershed movement. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of the careers that had uh, thrived in the um, in the 20s and, and prior uh basically ended. Uh, in fact, Abel Gantz is a, a major example. He was at the top of his game. I mean, he still worked afterward, but and he even remade uh, Jacques Hughes, which I think was 38, uh, but didn't have the same popularity. Uh, Lebier, his career, even though he worked, basically ended as far as being successful. Um, and then the same happened in, in the U.S. as well. You know, we, we already mentioned D.W. Griffith, his career pretty much ended as well. A lot of silent filmmakers just couldn't function. And the same thing happened with actors and actresses. It was just basically a kind of a, a film revolution. So in a lot of ways, the, uh, the the new French sound filmmakers were kind of a, quote, new wave in a way, because they, even though they worked in sound, they were, um, they brought a new aesthetic, of course, sound. And so in, in the beginning, they started by just basically, they, they didn't know what to do. So they just filmed theater, really. Um, in fact, uh, Renoir's uh, Un- Un Purge Bebe, which I think I've seen it translated as baby's laxative. Um, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's unnerving. Uh, I know. Right. Well, I, 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 we'll watch it for the next show. But um, There you go. But it's, it's a one-act play pretty much, uh, or maybe not one act, but uh, it's a one-location play. And then, uh, of course, Claire and Pagnol, who we're going to talk about in another episode, you know, they kind of rocketed through this uh, this little barrier, or the sound barrier, so to speak. 
and uh, and and Claire Renee Claire actually hated the sound technology and was really reluctant to um, embrace it. But he actually mm. managed, you know, to find a, a quite a voice and you know with these leftist kind of comedy dramas, uh, uh, A Liberté, Lemillion. Um, and then Pagnol, he was a playwright, and so he basically just filmed his um, his theater, and uh, and that that actually functioned. The family trilogy is is major, so so yeah, the, it was basically that until around thirty four ish when uh, when realism took over, and uh, and yeah, uh, and and of course nineteen thirty one. I've already mentioned Anatole Lickback a few times, but he made a film uh, in thirty one called Lilac that had uh, Fernandel who. Uh, is a major actor we've already talked about and again this guy named uh, Jean Gabin <laughs> so hmm. made his that wasn't his debut but I think that was one of his first major roles so so yeah there was a lot happening in those first few years and uh, and that would basically set the stage for um, for film the rest of the decade and actually much later what I really like about those kind of early sound films is there's an interesting kind of and we'll get into this definitely with Vigo is there's an interesting relationship between the extent to which sound is used in the extent to which they're still relying on silent film techniques that uh, I think provides kind of a lively tension to the whole affair. You don't really know from shot to shot what kind of aesthetic experience you're going to get. You know, there can be a direct sound recording or kind of sound layered in later. Uh, and I see that a lot more, I think, in these early French films than in like the U.S. or Germany, which seemed their industrial practices seemed a lot more refined. Uh, mm-hmm. But in these French silent films, there's a kind of almost kind of handmade quality to them, even in the bigger productions, because from shot to shot, they could be employing so many different kinds of techniques. Yeah, a lot of that was money, too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> you weren't there for that segment, but they didn't have much. So uh, a lot of times they, they did do direct sound, but uh, the, I, we'll talk about a day in the country, but I think there were a lot of challenges there uh, with trying to get direct sound. And actually, uh, uh, La Chienne, I think uh, they did direct sound, and um, and sometimes in some scenes they picked up sounds that you know today or actually even a, a decade or two later uh, would have been, would not have been there so um, I think it was economy in a lot of respects well should we get into uh, a couple of uh, di- important directors that we've been teasing sure yeah have we covered the transition <laughs> I mean probably not fully but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so I, I guess we can't cover it fully but uh, yeah. that's, uh, that's sound film or silent to sound film. So and silent to sound. It'll come back up as we get to individual filmmakers. We'll have to talk about their their silent works. So, um, yeah, we thought we'd transition into, uh, we're going to be talking about Jacques Feder and uh, Jean Vigo, one in the Criterion Collection, one not uh, so much. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, talking about uh, Jacques Feder, uh, who, as I'd mentioned before, has a Phantom page and some films in the, the collection, uh, well, on Hulu, I should say. Um, so we'll see what uh, kind of happens with that. But uh, he's part of the big five, as we'd mentioned. Um, so wanted to talk briefly about his uh, career, and then we'll talk about his um, early films. Uh, Aaron, I'll turn it to you first. Uh, sure, yeah, he is uh, part of the Big Five, but he's 
kind of the uh, redheaded stepchild of the Big Five. Uh, you know, <laughs> most people, if you mention the other four, you'll you know, if they're cinephiles, you'll get some response or you know a, a recognition. But with Fader, he's he's pretty obscure, and uh, but he, that doesn't mean he's not important. He it's just right. it's been eighty something years since he's worked. So, uh, but uh, but and and also he was a lot older than the um, the rest of the these. I use the term new wave. I know it's not the French new wave, but I guess I'll keep using it. But he was older than this new wave of filmmakers. Uh, and he's kind of, he's almost kind of like a grandfather or a father, mentor of these uh, mm. these filmmakers, even poetic realism. Um, but he was kind of, but as far as his filmmaking, he was kind of all over the place. He um, he cut his teeth in the silent era and uh, and actually had a huge hit in uh, Latlantide. Uh, and then he made it, and that actually kind of hurt him because it was he spent so much money, even though it was successful. People, the production companies, stayed away from him because he was a big spender. Right. Um, so then he settled down and made some other um, films that we'll talk about, uh, and some of them had uh, realist qualities, and uh, so and they were uh, again all over the place. But uh, he, uh, some of his realist films, I think. Uh, Sort of became influential for the the other four of the big five and and some of the other filmmakers that um, achieved success in the thirties. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, and he was actually born uh, just a little bit of his background. He was born Jacques uh, Frederics, right? <laughs> if that's how you pronounce it. But uh, of course, he was born in Belgium, uh, and he was uh, traditional bourgeoisie. Uh, also from a, a military family. That's kind of a, a, a running theme, I think, for for some folks. Um, who went to, and he did go to a military uh, academy, but he was kicked out for being insubordinate. Um, so he wanted to be an actor, uh, wanted to get into art. And I, I think it's funny how his father actually forced him to change his name <laughs> uh, because he wanted to be an actor. So that's when he changed it from uh, Frederick's to uh, Fedeur. So you can, you know, it's not that odd, not that different. That's right? a pretty so. common story, I think. Uh, Dad, I want to be an actor. All right, you're, <laughs> change your name and get out of here. <laughs> or they do it uh, willfully. You know, Eric Romare wasn't born Eric Romare. Yeah, yeah, actually, it's very common, in fact. Yeah. Um, of course, yeah. a lot of times people change their name just to, uh, maybe not French filmmakers as much, but um, Americans especially, uh, to yeah. make, it, make it sound more American. Sure. Yeah, I think Fader is a little bit easier to say too but he and <laughs> Fred so he, he yeah and he, he and he, he got a start in theater and then did move over to film uh, which is when he he met his wife uh, who also changed her name she was uh, Francois Bandy de uh, Nalesh Nalesh who she was uh, she became a star as uh, Francoise Rosé and you see her in uh, some of Fader's films of course but and he was very prolif- prolific uh, early on. He did mm-hmm. directed 14 films for Gaumont over a year and a half, uh, one of them being a four-part uh, serial before he was uh, interrupted by the Great War, World War One, when he had to, um, you know, had to serve. do his duty. <laughs> yep, had to do his duty. Yeah, he really was prolific. And I, I, tr- I watched a, a few of those. Uh, some of those are on the, the Kino uh, Gaumont classic set, which I, I happen to own. And uh, I've been looking for an excuse to... to to pull out of the shelf and uh and yeah they were they were good but you, i didn't really see a whole lot in in what he the, the filmmaker he became later uh, they were just basically shorts short films that were decent for 19 uh, most mostly all of them were 1916 1917 um but yeah no his, his 20 stuff is really i think what's uh what's notable here yeah, and you mentioned uh 
Latlana Tide was his big uh, breakthrough. Any anything else uh, on his kind of finding his his voice before the thirties? Yeah, well, I I think really. Uh, is that how you say it? I, I, Latlantide, Latlantide. I, who knows? We're probably all wrong. <laughs> I went. I went with Tide. I, I think, uh, and I, I forget specifically how he got that job, but that was a huge, uh, epic um, film set in the desert. Uh, and I know Scott, you've seen at least some of it. Um, I made it as far as I could. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a big break for him at the time, is my understanding. Um, hmm. And. A lot of people didn't expect it to be successful, in part because those kind of expectations build up around any like enormous, complex, expensive film that there's no way it could possibly recoup its money. But it proved incredibly popular, despite the fact that it's something like three hours long and uh, certainly now very slow moving. Um, <laughs> that was unfortunately my experience with a lot of the Fader stuff I've seen is that just, uh, yeah, he really takes his time getting to the, the point of, of it all. <laughs> but it, it's an, it's an interesting story at least on the outset it's you know these kind of great uh, early 20th century kind of adventure thing of these two guys get found in a desert and they recount this story of meeting up with the the queen of atlantis and it's just like this <laughs> wonderfully fantastic adventure that it takes i mean seriously like an hour to even start to get to that point uh but it uh wow. it certainly has uh a, a, a hook to it at the beginning i could see why it'd be so popular with audiences and the imagery is quite fantastic and you know anytime you can really hook an audience with that kind of big screen vista stuff that's uh that's what the movies are there for in a way so yeah i think you you made it further than i did okay (laughs) it's 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 a gorgeous film and and if you've seen a lot of these uh, you know again we mentioned griffith you know intolerance you know big spectacle films it kind of has that and and you don't see that a lot with early silent films at least i haven't seen um, french silent films i I haven't seen these big blockbuster epics like 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 demille or um but yeah it was criticized for the acting and i i guess it even though it was really popular um, I think it put butts in seats, but it really wasn't very critically acclaimed. So, uh, but again, it, it was popular, and that's sometimes enough. And that really made a tale his... as old as time. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. It was Michael Bay. <laughs> so it, it seemed like uh, I mean, the, the, and this was maybe an outlier for him too, because he wasn't uh, really that popular with with audiences, and you know, like you said, with critics. And um, so, you know, maybe that's why he's a bit forgotten uh, in some circles, even though he is uh, part of the, the the big five. But did make uh, generally some some serious works, from what I understand. So. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting yeah. how quickly he turned to kind of a realist aesthetic. I mean, Cronkabil, which is the next year, is an intensely like, I mean, it could be uh, Italian uh, neorealism kind of mm-hmm. film. It's just about this guy trying to uh, peddle a cart full of goods and you know sell stuff, and he gets kind of implicated in this crime, and things spiral out of control for him, and he turns to alcohol, and mm. it's just this real kind of classic downfall of the working man story that... Uh, I I actually really like this one in part because it's uh, the shortest film I saw. <laughs> I think he works well in that kind of contained environment. It's a very focused story, uh, and there's a really wonderful performance. Main actor uh, Maurice De Ferrati, uh gives a really wonderful performance, and he's in basically every scene of the film. He really mm-hmm. carries it really well, and uh, yeah, and that's it's just interesting to me that he turned so quickly from such a huge spectacle to such a focused kind of uh story and he talked kind of later in his life about being kind of a, a workman didn't really put a lot of uh stock into any artistic qualities but i i think 
this kind of indicates maybe where his sympathies lie that i mean you'd think after a big commercial success that he could do pretty much anything he wanted i, I think yeah. that mm-hmm. notion kind of still existed even by the 20s in commercial cinema but he chose this kind of stripped down story and so i, th- I think that says something about his character and his interests and I think some of it is also because uh, the the production companies wouldn't give him the, the same amount of money to do another uh, Latlantide. So they, so he mm-hmm. he kind of had to create uh, these limit or lower budget stories. Uh, and uh, and I think he, even though he didn't really find his voice, I think he did stumble on some some great things. Um, I do have a quote uh, from Alan about uh, about Latlantide uh, and Crankabill. I'm again probably butchering both, but. Uh, about Latlantide, he said, uh, Watch now 90 years on. It seems an archaic fossil of a movie. Not impossible to watch, but a long old haul. So it seems all the more remarkable that his next film would be so radically different and under half the length. Um, and then he says that Cranquibill uh, will be... Will be. <laughs> says it's a little dated now, but at the time it was a breath of fresh air. And then uh, he also then... He, he worked on a few films, but uh, Visage d'Enfant... Uh, which is also called Mother, I think is actually remarkable. Uh, it's not as short as Crankabill, not as long as Latlantide. Uh, it actually, apparently, was unseen for a very long time. And uh, and I know it, it finally got a DVD release in 2006. I, I don't know if the print was lost. Um, have you seen this one, Scott? No, alas, I did not get to it. Okay, it's it's exceptional, I thought. And, and this one is mm. very much realistic. Um but it does use uh, even for the budget. It uses some some uh, technical expertise. There's a lot of color filters. I think he uses well. Uh, it's set in the Swiss Alps, uh, and it's basically a, a, a passing of a mother, and there's a funeral, and there uh, and it's from the child's perspective, hence mother, and uh, a stepmother steps in with another daughter, and of course this is a familiar story. The daughter and the step daughter and he don't get along their stepsister but it's uh, it's i think a really moving film I, I guess some some would see it as slow of course some would see any silent film as slow but i i thought it was well worth watching and um and it, of, of what i've his i've seen it seems like more of a direct connection to the realist stuff that would come later oh it's also mm-hmm. worth mentioning it was written by charles spack or charles spack who um wrote grand illusion and uh, a lot of other and actually i think he wrote the um uh, Fader's 30s stuff as well. So, and he also wrote yeah. a Temporary Gentleman too. An important collaborator for sure. Yeah, that that one's actually. Uh, I think the DVD is out of print, but you can buy it on Amazon. You can't rent it, but if you're willing to plop down ten bucks, uh, it's yours. Yeah, a lot of these silence are hard to find. Um, I bought a French set, uh, Lobster Films, and they didn't have subtitles. So thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to help you with your French, right, Aaron? It's... Yeah, well, and I, I gave uh, Visage de Bond a, a try, and it just did not work. So I had to go uh, do a workaround, but I, I was able to see it. And uh, and The Temporary Gentleman was on the, uh, the French-Russian set. Uh, have you seen that, Scott? Uh, yeah, and that's actually rentable through Flickr Alley has their own kind of Vimeo channel where you can rent films for uh, fairly cheap. And I really recommend people check things out that way because I know their discs are a little on the expensive side, but this is Mm -hmm. a good way to check out the really great stuff they put out. Uh, Yeah, this was another one of those films that like it, it it certainly has a lot of really thrilling moments. There's kind of, Mm -hmm. and they're realist moments too. I think this where his realist side really pays off because 
uh, all the driving scenes and there's a scene on a train uh, very uncommonly i think for the time that there wasn't any uh kind of rear projection or anything used like that so you really get kind of the feel of the wind in their hair and the, the light moving across their face and there's a real sense of momentum and the tactile tactile qualities of uh just kind of existing in time which i, I think pays off really handsomely and those scenes are great there's a, a ballet dream sequence that's also pretty uh hilarious and thrilling it kind of comes out of nowhere because this guy is kind mm-hmm. of falling asleep in congress it's oh yeah that's kind a of good loosely scene. Yeah, yeah it's kind of loosely a political satire uh but i can't figure out what people found so offensive at the time <laughs> because i mean maybe people were just that naive about politics but it kind of seemed like uh, I mean, you know, even if you read like accounts of politics in the 1920s and stuff in the newspaper and stuff, it seemed like people were well aware that uh, their politicians were plenty corrupt. And the <laughs> idea that a film would explore that didn't seem like that radical to me. But, you know, I wasn't there. Uh, but it, on the whole, it it was kind of billed. And maybe this was a matter of expectations for me, but it's kind of billed as this like very witty comedy. And it doesn't have a lot of real uh, snap and precision to it that you would find in like a Lubitsch silent film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes, you know, it kind of underlines uh, plot developments again and again. There's a, a strike that comes in late in their film, and the fact that a strike has happened is said like two or three different times in two or three different scenes. Right. And it's yeah. just, you don't need this kind of constant repetition, especially if you're trying to kind of, because uh, I mean, my understanding is it was meant to be a comedy at the time, and that the stage play it was adapting was uh, comedic in some sense, but uh, that, that never really came across to me. And it, like I said, it has its moments, uh, but it seemed kind of uh, the most workmanlike of all the Fader films I've seen. Yeah, I, I'm I, I'm with you, and it's it's also kind of uh, well, it's very leftist. It's almost kind of like a, a, a silent film meet John Doe and cross uh, very Capra esque, I guess. Um, maybe Mr. Smith goes to Washington too, because you have the yeah. uh, your everyman guy trying to become a politician. Um, uh, but but there there were some some I think great sequences where I think the realism and the, really the poetry, uh, especially with his, his relationship, uh, I think that that really worked. But but no, I, I think it doesn't compare. I, I think uh, Visage or Mother is uh, probably the best of what I've seen, and, and sounds like Crank Crankaby is probably up there as well. But um, but again, uh, everything everybody says that he was all over the place and couldn't really find his voice. I think we've just with. I think these, even he would say that. So <laughs> he would, yeah. But I think uh, later in the '30s, uh, he he definitely did find his voice. And uh, another thing, I think he he wasn't good at editing, as you mentioned. There was a lot of um, uh, redundant uh, sequences, and I think the same is actually true of, of Mother, even though I like that film. Uh, but he he probably could have cut his films down a little bit, and they would have been better. That that's certainly the the case for the temporary gentleman. Yeah, for sure. And Ladlantide, come on, <laughs> right? <laughs> Three hours worth. So, so then he yep. he went away to America, and uh, uh, that didn't work out for him. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, as you mentioned, uh, Aaron, you know, moving into the '30s, he was signed by MGM and went to Hollywood, and uh, he did. You know, he liked to have greater control, so he liked to either write uh, and or rewrite his own screenplays, as you did, as you mentioned, he did work with uh, Charles uh, Spock, but uh, he liked to choose his cast and kind of have more control of the, of the visual style, uh, which, you know, can't blame him, but working in Hollywood, he didn't find that he was able to influence those decisions as much, so he bowed out of his contract and came back to France and made some films, again, as we mentioned, not as well-known, but uh, still important. Uh, The 1930s films, the industries you had mentioned before, the 
was in decline due to the depression. He did try to make a, a political satire uh, called 1940, where um, wow, women could actually vote, right? So, <laughs> um, which is, is a through line through his films. Uh, as I was watching some of his later films, uh, there are um, there's a lot where he is focused on kind of his the moral centers of his films are women, children, young and young adults, um, which is a nice. Uh, nice to see, especially yeah. for uh, 1930s films. So, uh, and some of the, the important ones, there is Le Grand Jeu or The Great Game, uh, which was his first sound film and the first one he made in France, um, which is uh, it's kind of discreetly impression, uh, expressionistic lighting. Mm -hmm. And I think you do see that. I, I kind of wrote in my notes, um, Trey architecture early in the, uh, there's a scene in the house uh, with uh, Pierre uh, that you certainly see the expressionism influence uh, as we had, uh, had mentioned. Um, but this yeah, it's one kinda is kind of like uh, persona actually, if you really think about it. Yeah, yeah I could see that. Yeah, it's uh, the, the other film that is, uh, you know, seen as an influence, of course, is uh, or that it influenced is um, Vertigo, the, the Hitchcock film mm -hmm. with, the, you know, the, the two different uh, personalities. But, yeah, that's a great, great one to uh, to point out. So and it, it was uh, it was a hit at the time. Uh, and based on that was allow allowed him to produce uh, his his uh, next two films. Um, but just, a, you know, a couple other things on Le Grand Jeu, it does uh, mention, uh, it features Charles Vanel, who uh, was, you know, has been in a number of other films we've, we've mentioned. Uh, so it's nice to see him. Um, we do see the, uh, the actor or the character of, of Florence um, is also, is played by the same actor as Irma, uh, except they, they dubbed the voice of, uh, of Irma, which was um, interesting kind of making that uh, that difference and i i did see it was interesting you kind of brought over uh, brought up the almost hitting you over the head with things scott and i did there is a bit of that with the foreshadowing in this film it kind of hits you over the head with it but i will say it does pay off in the end i think the end is uh, is fabulous and really kind of um made me uh, appreciate the uh, the film a lot and uh, as i'd mentioned it does uh, the actress that plays Blanche is Francoise Rosé. You do, do see her a lot. Uh, she was my favorite, really my favorite actress in this film uh, and in another one. So uh, he also did Carnival in Flanders. Um, that's the one I'd mentioned is on Hulu and you can get from a BFI DVD. Um, probably is going to be... Uh, I think the common opinion is that's going to be the one that's will be released by him uh, by Criterion first. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> so, and this is a different film uh, going from Le Grand Jeu to Flanders. It's much lighter. Uh, it's his best known film, uh, but isn't necessarily, you know, representative of uh, what he did. Um, there are some important act actors in it. Uh, of course, um, Louis Jovet as the priest, um, and uh, Andre Almer as the uh, as the mayor, and uh, as I mentioned, Delphine is in it, who's the headmaster in uh, Zero de Conduit, and so it's it's a very uh, considered a consistent film. The actors fit really well together, and that's that's very true. Um, certainly, which is different than uh, other cinema of this period. Uh, 
I, these films were at this time, as I'd mentioned, his peak, and uh, mm-hmm. of course the you know the moral center uh, that I'd mentioned. Um, Carnival of Flanders is set in 1616, so it does kind of go back a bit to uh, another time frame, but is very light, uh, more than I uh, was really expecting. And it, the the film takes place in one day night, basically. Um, so it kind of re- it reminded me a bit of Rules of the Game, which will you know, come out uh, four years after this in, uh, in 1939. So um, really, really fun film. It's an easy one to watch. Uh, there is a bit of, you could say, even surrealism in it. In the, there is a dream sequence the, that comes up. So, you know, as we had mentioned, there are some, some influences kind of uh, spattered uh, throughout these films. So it's a nice heroic comic farce, um, uh, the uh, Carnival in Flanders. So would recommend that one. And uh, the other one that, that is especially well-known but hard to find, there is a French DVD that I couldn't even find if it had English subtitles, but um, is uh, Pechon uh, Mimosas, uh, so Hotel Mimosa, <laughs> uh, which is uh, 1935. Um, so another film, another one that, of course, stars uh, Francoise Rosé. So, yeah, and he, he did work quite a bit with uh, uh, Charles Spock, who's um, you know important uh, director, uh, really the first writer-director team of the mm-hmm. French industry. Uh, of course, followed by uh, Carnet and uh, Prevert. Yeah, and uh, it's worth pointing out that those three th- films were hugely popular, and uh, and then he w- was able to d- go out off in, into England and do uh, Night Without Armor. Um, but I, I think that's really why he's considered the Big Five is is partly on the strength of his silent work, but mostly because these three films were just mammoth. Um, unfortunately, nowadays mm. they're not quite forgotten, but close. Uh, yeah. worth a worthy rediscovery. I, I would love to see like an eclipse set if we ever get one of those again. Of yeah. the three of them. Um, that would be perfect. Have you seen yeah. any, any of these, Scott? I'm afraid I've not. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, I'd recommend. Uh, in fact, I haven't seen uh, Pension Mimosa. Is that how you say it? It's too easy to say Pension Mimosas. Yeah. <laughs> like brunch. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no. The other two are definitely worth seeing. Yeah, you know, Le Grand Jeu is it's a nice DVD too. It's a uh, Masters of Cinema put it out. It's got a, a nice booklet, no supplements other than the yeah. essays in the booklet, but um, and it features the uh, the cover, the original painting, I believe, with the two actresses uh, next to each other. So it's a gorgeous looking DVD if you're still okay with buying <laughs> the standard <laughs> definition DVDs. Oh, it's also so, and if you're region free, of course. Also worth mentioning that uh, that. Marcel Carnet w- worked on these three films with him uh, as an assistant. So, uh, and he, oh, yeah. his career really started around mid thirties, I think maybe thirty six, if I remember. So he kind of cut his teeth with uh, Fedor. So Fedor, I, I don't believe any of the other big five or, or other prominent filmmakers worked with him, but he was sort of a mentor of of, of a lot of um, filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the stuff to come, uh, I think Duvivier is very similar to him in, in their career t- trajectory. So yeah, he was a big deal then. Not so much now. So yeah. yeah. Any anything else kind of on his legacy? Do you guys wanted to mention? Well, I Fader? mean, he kind of like I mentioned earlier, he kind of thought of himself as a, a craftsman, a kind of workmanlike director, and I think the diversity of the kind of films he made and the subjects he took on, the styles he took on, and bear that out in some ways. And uh, you know, I mean, people have found sort of connective tissues throughout his film, and certainly, like we said, he definitely. Uh, insisted on kind of bigger budgets and had a, a tendency to spend a lot of money on his films and really seek out the 
most favorable uh, means of production from country to country. You know, he wasn't afraid to bail to America and then bail right back if he needed to. <laughs> um, and so that's, you know, admirable in its own way. But uh, the arguments for him as a, a great filmmaker, you know, I, I should check out more of his sound work for sure. But based on his, his silent work, you know, he seemed like a, a fine work, like a fine director. And I've seen one of his American silent films, The, the Kiss, which has its own moments. Garbo, I think there's yeah. a... Yeah, there's a sequence in a museum that's kind of striking in a way that I hadn't seen. You know, that setting alone is kind of an unusual place for a silent film to take place. But it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting film, but not terrifically successful. So maybe it's a matter of him completely coming into his own as a sound filmmaker. And I'd like to check out more of his work there. But it seems like a lot of his legacy is as a commercial filmmaker and as an influencer of sorts, certainly to Carnet and perhaps to others. Uh yeah, I mean, maybe you guys have a greater perspective having seen more of his sound work. There is actually um, one silent film, uh, Therese Requin, I believe it's is what it's called, which was based on a novel uh, by Zola. Uh, that one's lost, and that was, uh, by many accounts, his most successful silent film, and uh, and and actually his most realist. So, but because it's lost, you know, maybe his career might have turned out differently or his his legacy might have been different if it was still around um i know that was remade by carnet later uh, a couple decades later but and i i think you're right i think he was a, a good quality filmmaker his silent work is pretty good i i really like visage d'enfant the, the rest are you know i could take or, or leave uh, but um but I think his sound work is worth discovery. I think Le Grand Jeu is uh, fantastic, and I think Carnival of Flanders, as you kind of mentioned, Mark, is a lot of fun, and yeah. it, it is light, uh, and it's enjoyable, easily easy to watch. Uh, and I, yeah, so I, I think he's worth discovery. But uh, compared to a lot of the filmmakers we're going to talk about, it maybe pales a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one to check out if you have some time. Especially compared to the next filmmaker we're going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, we'll take a, a, a quick break and uh, transition into uh, someone who is in the collection with uh, Jean Vigo. Completely in the collection. Completely. <laughs> back to Criterion Close-Up. We are going to get into our last segment. Uh, we've got to talk about Mr. Jean Vigo, uh, a box set in the collection, so to speak, although it really is, it's one disc, uh, it's one, <laughs> um, four films on the uh, the disc, but I don't know, I, I would say if you were a, a fan of French cinema, you would have to put this on your uh, desert island list you'd have to bring oh, it with you for sure for sure <laughs> such a beautiful and very it's unfortunate that his films all fit on one disc i wish there were yeah. several discs but uh, that's the way it is it is yeah so i mean and he, he's he is a tragic figure we thought it would set him up a little bit um you know before we talk about the films in the set but he he was the uh, the son of uh, eugene de vigo uh, who also went under a, a pseudonym, which I thought was interesting. Uh, it's Almereda, Almereda, yeah, uh, which is an anagram f- uh, for in French meaning uh, there is shit. So <laughs> he didn't like his name. <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, and it was funny when I first read that. I'm like, that looks like shit. And yeah, that's that's what it means. Yep. Um, 
but he was a he was a left wing anarchist, uh, so kind of makes sense with uh, with the name. Uh, he was a bit of a revolutionary. He um, propagated propaganda and uh, made some crude bombs and joined the Socialist Party at the time. And so he was a journalist and publisher at that time. And uh, his father was uh, tragically killed in prison uh, just soon after going there. And uh, some folks kind of close to him felt that it was because uh, it was government officials secretly trying to um, you know, protect their involvement with his socialist activities. So, you know, yeah, well, he was basically a terrorist. And by today's standards, he would be called a terrorist. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not absolving uh, uh, the, them for murder if that's what happened. But uh, it seems like that is what happened. But, uh, yeah, it's quite a story. And uh, and he had to get out of um, out of the country and uh, change his name. Uh, but he had a lot of left wing people helping him. That actually kind of that's how he became a filmmaker. They uh, they helped him to get his uh, his ideas into film. Um, right. Quite a quite a story yeah. and quite a guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was he became ill with uh, tuber- tuberculosis in uh, in twenty one and uh, married a, a woman Elizabeth uh, Luzinska. Uh, who was uh, part of a bourgeoisie Polish family. And uh, so that really is, that family uh, really helped him get into the, the industry or at least gave him the uh, the funds to make some of his films. As you'd mentioned, he did meet like uh, Claude uh, Atant-Laura, uh, who was a left-wing art, uh, anarchist at the time, uh, got him a job as an assistant cameraman. And uh, also there was some support from Germain Dulac, but right. yeah. uh, he did... Did have trouble getting into film, other than you know really getting that uh, grant from his father-in-law, so he could buy a camera and make um, apropos Denise. So yeah, important. Yeah, I mean and, he uh, he really uh, he did what a lot of people say they would do if they got such a grant. He you know bought the camera and went off and made an actual film. And apropos Denise is uh, it's a documentary kind of about sort of about Nice. He wanted it to be more of a historical angle when he started and he did some like intense research on it, on the history of Nice and then basically completely abandoned that approach. Mm-hmm. And he kept switching yeah. between styles and approaches, which is kind of reflected in the finished film, which is this kind of like avant-garde cityscape film and the it, kind of in the mode of Berlin uh, Symphony of a City or even Man with a Movie Camera mm-hmm. in just sort of taking at once kind of a documentary and then also there's some like lightly staged scenes throughout uh it's a really fascinating kind of thrilling film but it kind of set the stage for Vigo's very very restless director who never quite settled on exactly what he wanted you know he'd come in each day pretty much with a new approach um which you know works well with this kind of Mm -hmm. avant-garde documentary and but then has some really dynamic results in his fiction films as well uh, but that in some ways kind of sets the stage for a lot of French cinema to come. You know, Jean-Luc Godard famously worked without scripts or at least with just rough mm-hmm. outlines that he would kind of embellish throughout production. And that's just kind of the beginning of where you see Vigo's influence. But Apropos de Nice is, uh, like I said, it's a very thrilling film and it really became his calling card. You know, he ended up spending that money very well. It got into the right kind of film clubs and cinema houses to kind of make a real impact and uh, get his name out there. I'm sure you guys have seen this film, though, uh, mm-hmm. and I think it stands up very well on its own. Uh, yeah, this was the, probably the big, biggest discovery for me from when the set was put out. I didn't even know about it before uh, Criterion put the set out, and I was kind of instantly taken with it. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning, too, that he worked with Kaufman, who was Vertov's, uh, was it brother? brother? Yeah, it was Vertov's brother, Boris Kaufman, yeah. was his, uh, his cinematographer. 
And so you can see some of those uh, Sinai uh, de details in, in the film. You can tell that Kaufman was a part of it. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a fantastic film. It's also worth mentioning that he had to live in Nice because of his poor health. Uh, right. And he couldn't, uh, you know, that was supposed to be therapeutic, living, uh, you know, near the, uh, the the coastline. And um, and actually that's kind of a, that would come back later when he would go to Paris, he would get ill and have to retreat again. And, and actually towards, you know, he, he died young. I, I believe he died in Paris, yeah, when he was making uh, Latalent. So, no, anyways. Yeah. Ahead, uh, I did want, I did forget to mention that he was living in Nice at the time. There are some sources mm. that say he kind of like, kind of chose it as a random subject, but no, it was because he was living there and was He's directly there. confronting yeah. the kind of bourgeois attitudes he was surrounded by. Um, and his kind of left-wing background definitely informs both his view of the rich and his view of the mm. poor. You know, there's wonderful sequences with the children playing this kind of incomprehensible game <laughs> on the streets. Uh, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, and we should mention yeah. he was radical. I mean, maybe not quite as radical as his father, but uh, right. his mm -hmm. his cinema was social cinema, and he was really trying to inject left wing, nearly anarchic messages in in his films. And and actually, if you see definitely Zero to Conduit, you see that uh, in 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 the flesh. Maybe not so much Terrace and uh, a little bit in Latterland, but uh, but yeah, he was probably of, of everybody we talk about here, probably the most politically dissident. Um, yeah, but even that kind of classification seemed kind of spur of the moment. You know, in reading the biography uh, that Gomez wrote on him, uh, there was this kind of notion that he kind of came with a social documentary as uh, something in the end. You know, it wasn't something he kind of set out to do. It was just kind of something he came up with by the time the film premiered. And he's like, oh, th this is what I'm doing now. And then <laughs> he, he would even change that. Yeah, exactly. And then he would even change that, certainly for... Uh, Taurus, which is uh, just a short film about a swimmer, which is pure commission work, but even mm -hmm. for Zero de Conduit and Latalant, uh, you know, they have a social dimension to them, but they're certainly not social documentary, and I, I don't even know if they would foremost call them social films, you know, he had a lot of diverse interests, and his kind of left-wing background was always mm -hmm. there and always informing his work, but, you know, the, somebody did a whole book-length study of his filmography through the lens of anarchism and I, I don't think that totally holds up i think there's really? a lot else going on i don't think it's a pure like call for anarchy or anything i i think uh, it's anarchy slash socialism i think there uh, I, I, his, his politics are very complicated for sure yes to say the least <laughs> i mean tara seems like more of a really an instructional swimming video you know and i know he was commissioned to do it but it's yeah, a little hard to see the anarchism in that no that no film, none, sure. none there yeah <laughs> but he did he, he did uh show off some technical chops in, in taras that he would he would bring mm -hmm. back in, in latalent um with the underwater shooting uh which is yeah. pretty impressive and then, and then the diving board uh yeah it's i, I don't think taras really stands up to the rest of his work but it's you know in the context of his work it's pretty interesting to see how yeah. how as he was learning um I, did you have anything for uh from the biography for that scott uh, not substantially from the biography, but I did want to touch on it. Uh, Michael Temple, in his commentary on the Criterion disc, kind of talks about how it was possible that even another filmmaker came in to kind of fill out the film, and it wasn't. Right. We might not be seeing just Vigo's work on it, but mm. it, it is interesting. interesting how much he was able to do with this kind of ten-minute instructional sh short that really could have been just a, a nothing film. And there's a lot of really lovely moments in it. You know, you mentioned the underwater shots which kind of come off as this incredible technical achievement but all he had to do was film through these portholes at a swimming pool True. <laughs> you know it's like the mm. simplest solution to a really complex problem um and there's also yeah the reverse diving board shot and i think most thrillingly there's that kind of superimposition 
at the end the where end. he mm-hmm. kind of transforms into a fully clothed man and seems to walk underwater, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I, I think, in some ways, the most successful ending to a movie <laughs> of all his films. You know, Zero de Conduit and Latalant kind of suddenly end. You know, they don't kind of uh, climax or crescendo or anything, but this there's kind of this lovely little coda at the end of it that uh, I think is really successful. Um, and he yeah. was to make a follow-up film on uh, the tennis champion. Uh, I couldn't find the guy's name, but uh, Cochette. Yeah. Um, and there's through. some really great stories in that biography about uh, him and his collaborators trying to break the story for that. And they stayed up all night in this hotel and ended up getting horribly sick from the lantern fumes. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, could have been. I can't remember exactly why that was scuttled, but I, I think it had something to do with the people of Gaumont not being completely sexed. Uh, not being completely thrilled with Taurus and just kind of turning their interests elsewhere. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, pretty much everything I read is just says, oh, he had another commission and it just fell through, but no stories. Yeah. They just move on to, to Zero to Conduit. So. There was uh, there's one shot in Taurus I thought of that would f- would have fit well into the 3D rarities set from Flickr Alley with the megaphone uh, with the announcer uh, with that becomes, you know, he kind of zooms in and is uh, really close to the camera. So I could oh, have yeah. seen something like that, you know, happening with this film and, you know, of course, the underwater scenes. Or maybe a propo Denise, uh, maybe the, uh, the, the, the can-can dance, maybe that would work in 3D. Yes. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> very, <Sorry>. very, uh, <laughs> yeah. very sexual, Im- Im- lots of sexual imagery in that one, kind of some phallic uh, imagery, too, yeah. that was interesting, yeah. not surprising. But well, yeah, actually, after Taurus... Oh, I was just going to say, after Taurus, he kind of went from job to job and really, I mean, things were looking incredibly dire for him at that moment and just like trying to get even the most menial jobs on film sets, never mind directing, which he'd already had a resume to do at that point. But he was really kind of scraping by before he got a, a huge break. Yeah. And I, I, was that Delac that helped him with that break? I, I, I don't recall. Uh, it was actually uh, Jacques-Louis Nunez, who was the... Okay financier and who uh he was a businessman and horse breeder who thought he'd give the film industry a, a shot uh and it was a completely fortuitous meeting you know somebody had mentioned apropos denise to him when he was kind of talking about getting into films but uh he ended up finding jean vigo and uh was willing to finance just about anything and they went through several different scenarios before settling on you know of course a horse film was in the mix and it's kind of funny the way nunez seems to keep coming back to this idea of making a horse film with various filmmakers and never <laughs> seemed to quite pull it off to my knowledge anyway, uh, which is too bad because that seemed to be his primary interest. But uh, in the meantime, he did give uh, uh, Jean Vigo an important break in his career. Yeah. Without that, uh, we probably wouldn't know him. No, so, not at all. Yeah. Well, Zero to Conduit, uh, you know, speaking of phallic symbols, there's, <laughs> I think that's one of the, one of the most uh, memorable or maybe not for the right reasons, but uh, of course there is the, uh, a little male nudity there, but no, I, I think uh, um, Zero to Conduit is is probably uh, I'd say his most radical film, and I, I'd say it's the the most realized of his political philosophy because uh, first off, it was it's set in a boy's home, and this is a, a personal film because he, when his father passed or was murdered, he was sent off to a boy's home, and I don't I don't think he was I, I'm guessing he wasn't fond of the experience. <laughs> and that kind of seems comes, to come through in the film. Yeah, it does come through, and uh, and there's a, it's very anti-authority. Uh, you know, there's one one character that's uh, you know that that has some redeeming characteristics, um, but mostly it's kids versus adults, and uh, you know it's really a template for the anarchic or socialistic uh, revolution, which is what he had hoped for, and uh, and so yeah, I, I don't want to. We we already promised we wouldn't spoil these films, and. 
this one's pretty easy to spoil, but um, but I, I just say it's it's to, to me it's a tremendous film. I think it's uh, uh, again I think it's because of its personal nature. I think the performances are great. Uh, I think uh, the um, speaking of Maird, there's a <laughs> important scene where a, a character, a, a ch- child character, uses the uh, the term Maird, uh, which kind of it works as a, a signal for of things to come. Right. But it, and also this one is not quite realistic and. Um, but also not quite surrealistic. It kind of yeah. again walks the balance, and I think that would be a stepping stone to his uh, his final film. So, um, hi Scott, you're you're not a fan as much of uh, Zero to Conduit. Uh, certainly not as much as La Talon, uh, but I, I like this film. Part of it is just my own personal biases. I don't find films about uh, children's boarding schools to be that uh, involving, in part because they so insist on how terrible an experience it is to live at school. Apparently, um, you know the the circumstances the, under which the kids live is not terribly punitive. You know, I mean, they're made to go to bed early and stay in bed, and their meals kind of suck, admittedly. <laughs> But aside from having to go to class and having to go to bed, there's I never really get the sense of why they need to uh, act out or, or revolt. And part of this is because I was a, a terribly obedient child. And so I've never <laughs> understood that kind of uh, rebellious nature in kids. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's a, a lot of great stuff in the film. I, I, the performances you mentioned are kind of great and kind of reading about the nature of the film set, which was just apparently total chaos. And they kind of instantly ran over uh, their schedule mm-hmm. um, just because Vigo couldn't find a way to coordinate all this. You know, when you think about it, this was his first really proper film. You know, Taurus was a short that he had to coordinate sure. with essentially one actor. Um, but this was coordinating a cast of dozens and many of which were kids, many of whom they just gathered from the streets of Paris who, you know, had no real discipline and were just having the time of their lives on this film set. And part of that, energy was what Vigo was trying to capture and Mm -hmm. it comes out successfully in the film but it's easy to see in the finished product the many ways in which they didn't capture all the material they needed and then even further when they had to edit out uh, a great deal Uh, the original running time I think was over an hour and it was just kind of agreed at the outset that this would be kind of a 40 minute short feature Um, and you can there's just not enough connective tissue I think in this film to make it completely successful to me like I said you don't really get the sense of kind of anything overbearing down in the kids there's no the flow to the film is kind of awkward and it kind of jumps from mood to mood and moment to moment they spend a lot of time on like the train at the beginning and then very little mm-hmm. time as the kind of rebelliousness gets out of hand and, and especially by the end you know that scene just it doesn't feel like one continuous or even experiential uh scene it just kind of jumps to suddenly being uh this grand moment of revolt. Yeah, mm. it is very radical, and uh, and I actually I think that's why I appreciate it so much because there really is there really is no example, at least in French cinema, of capturing that sort of radicalism and and as you said, that harnessing that energy that uh, that the kids brought. Um, and also, I, th- I think it's interesting that they they portray what seems to be a homosexual relationship among kids. So um, so yeah, there, yeah. There, there are a lot of taboos they. They explored, and yeah, and I mentioned the male nudity. That's basically why it got banned, or one of the reasons why it got banned. It also, was the political nature of it. Um, you know, people did take exception to the, uh, and and it, it is a little bit of a stretch why people took offense to it being uh, a political allegory because it just, it really is. Even though that may be what his intent, it does come off as just a, a school revolt. But um, but no, I, I think it's exceptional. But it's not my favorite uh, Vigo film, so um, 
Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention about uh, Zero, just uh, what I took away from it, just rewatching too, were some of the influences. Um, you know, of course, we, we did talk about uh, the Lindsay Anderson film If, and that's obviously an influence because it takes place sure. during a, a boarding school and there's a revolt. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the homosexual relationship that, you know, is in that film too, at least, you know, kind of alluded to. Um, but I also thought of the, uh, I do see, I mean, I think Scott, you'd mentioned the French New Wave, and I noticed that in Apropos Denise, and you can certainly see the influences from this film, from the, um, I noted that uh, Vigo seems to like his overhead shots that are kind of at an angle uh, that we do see again in, you know, like the 400 Blows and some uh, Godard films. So certainly an, an influence there. And I, I, I like the Charlie Chaplin moment, too, where the right. monitor uh, who yeah. does a <laughs> bit of a, a, a Chaplin um, uh, impression. So, yeah, at 45 minutes, I definitely I appreciated this one a lot. But I, I could see, um, you know, where it doesn't quite, like you're saying, Scott, give uh, reasoning to be so, you know, other than just kids will be kids, right, to be so, um, you know, against their uh, their elders. but. Uh, we should mention nice. another important collaborator joins uh, the Vigo team at this moment, uh, Maurice Gilbert, who did the music, which right, is really right. outstanding here, yeah. here. And they'd had the really adventurous uh, notion of running his music backwards during the dormitory revolt, uh, which really adds the kind of unusual nature of that scene. Of course, his music in Latalant, I think, is uh, is that how you say it? Is it Latalant or Latalant? Or, or I think it's Latalant. Latalant. Okay. Uh, the the A's in French are very uh, aw, you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but the, the travesty with Ladalant is um, that that score wasn't used. They they used some pop song instead. Um, and yeah, that unfortunately not just his short lifespan and his ill health, but um, his films really were butchered. Um, and I, it's unfortunate that the Ladalant didn't really get a proper release with his vision you know as close as we can imagine his vision until 1990 was it um, um i mean there were kind of there the history of latalanda and its release is so complicated but there were right. essentially uh there were like basically complete versions running by the by 1940 um that had incorporated a lot of the scenes that were cut um and reincorporated some of marie Schilbert's music but not they couldn't completely kind of re-edit it it was a lot of kind of just stitching back in deleted mm-hmm. scenes kind of thing. Uh, but the more full versions, I think, kind of came about in the late 50s. Um, and then it just kind of kept being re-edited from there. Um, and then even today, it's like we the, no, the version we have out is felt to be as close as possible to the original. But uh, especially since the original, original version was only shown to a handful of people before sure. starting to get cut down. Yeah, it didn't uh, it's do really, the... <laughs> Yeah, it's really hard to say. Well, not even uh, that. It's just like... Um, the version that they showed uh, Nunez and before they even showed it to Gaumont, um, mm-hmm. he had some notes. And so there were just innumerable uh, trims made along the way. But I mean, a lot of this is kind of just the nature of Vigo. Uh, there was a part in Gomez's book that I think is kind of says it all, where he says, Vigo is often technically awkward. It is in his eye, his inspiration, which is sure and which dominates. If he makes mistakes, more often than not, he imposes them on us the way great poets do. Um so there's this notion in Vigo that, you know, whatever he set out to make was kind of abandoned from the start. Mm-hmm. And the notion that you're getting kind of the, the purity of vision that we often look for in the great auteurs, I don't think you're going to find in Vigo. And I think that's part of what's so thrilling about his work is there's a sense of discovery. There's a sense of inventiveness and improvisation, amateurishness that 
would be kind of further incorporated by the time we get to the French New Wave. Um, and certainly we've talked about Jacques Rivette at great length, who was, a great, you know, to a great extent improvised cinema and <laughs> really set out with nothing in mind but the idea of making a film. And so I think Vigo really establishes this. And Vautelant, um man, I could just talk forever about this movie. <laughs> uh, but it, it, on a recent episode of The Chronicles, I, I said that I kind of considered The New World to be the greatest film ever made just for matters of convenience because it is my favorite. But the only one that really gives me pause in saying that is La Talante. Mm-hmm. Um I think this is an absolutely masterful, magnificent, thrilling, moving. It, it's everything I could ever want in a movie in a very short running time too which certainly mm-hmm. makes it easy to reconsider over time um but it also i think kind of channeled vigo in an important way and after zero de Conuit was outright banned and that wasn't just because of the, like nudity but the, like you said it was really the spirit of the film you know they could have trimmed away the most offensive parts but there was something about the film that they just felt was just completely unacceptable from right. the start and so uh, Gaumont by that point, which was kind of, you know, kind of working with Nunez in terms of the financing for the, these films, they were like, fine, we know you like this Vigo guy. And, uh, Nunez against all odds. I mean, he had every reason to write Vigo off after zero to Condoweed, which ran over schedule, which was not exactly the film they ran, made, uh, started out to make and which, uh, was so offensive to so many people, but he still, he liked the film and he, he said to Vigo, I, I think you know something about human nature. You've suffered a good deal. Don't lose faith in yourself. Your film is very good, mm-hmm. which was exactly the encouragement he needed. And uh, But Gaumont and he did come to an agreement that uh, Vigo would not be able to write the script for his next film and would have to kind of choose from the scenarios they had. But luckily, he chose a film that the scenario for which was very archetypal, you know, this... Uh, a man and a woman get married and live on a barge and kind of separate and come back together. And I, I know we said we wouldn't spoil the film, but I think the plot is kind of besides the point. And it, it is here, I, yeah. I, I think it's obvious, the trajectory of the film, you know, it, it's a romance and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I love romantic films. Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily the writer had as much uh, kind of disregard for the script as uh, Vigo did. So Vigo was kind of free to do with it as he pleased. Um, and so the result is very different you know, the the original treatment is mostly in line with the finished film structurally, but the emphasis was more on the melodrama of it uh, and kind of a clearer vision of sort of the plot points. And there were some religious overtones that were completely abandoned. You can mm-hmm. imagine why Vigo would not be interested in those. Um, and the character of Père Jules, who uh, Michel Simon plays, was kind of a more kind of wizened elder figure, whereas in the film, he's just like kind of a maniac. <laughs> he's and, a hoarder, uh, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so Vigo just kind of kept adding these kind of chaotic elements to make it more unusual, to make it uh, weirder. Um, and the most minor of change might actually be the most telling. Uh, in the film, they're kind of living on board with these like herd of alley cats. They're like 10 or 12 <laughs> cats just running amok. Uh, in the original script, it was just to be a nice dog. And Vigo's <laughs> like, no, no, we need just wild cats running around, <laughs> which is exactly the sort of thing you need when you're trying to you know, sell yourself as a responsible filmmaker, <laughs> but yeah, um, probably not exactly easy. <laughs> yeah, not at all. And yeah, the making of this film was in, similarly chaotic to Zero to Conduit. There was a lot of uh, location shooting and outdoor shooting that uh, led to a lot of chaos, and which certainly contributed to 
Vigo's untimely death, you know, they shot in the dead of winter. I mean, this was like mm-hmm. December, January, which if you know the French climate is not the most welcoming. And it was in the northern part of France, too, not even mm-hmm. the southern. So he was pretty much you know, outdoors, suffering constantly. And some days barely able to make it a set if he made it a set at all. And at some points he feared that his collaborators were taking the film away from him. And so he kind of insisted on his own involvement where he maybe didn't need to. And so it's, it's a romantic story in some ways, this kind of notion of sacrificing all for your films, but Mm -hmm. there's also a real tragedy to it in the long run, but the finished film, I mean, I think, I I don't want to say it paid off because no film should kill somebody, but it is, like I said, uh, really tremendous and you really get the sense at every turn that uh, they're really kind of making it up as they go along to really thrilling uh, effect and I, th- I think the cast works really well uh, Dito Parlo was mm-hmm. uh, I think a German actress right Austrian maybe yeah, she's terrific Do you guys recall I, I think yeah. I think she was German wasn't she uh, yeah that's where that's where I wanted to go initially so I will stick with that um, but she's really the main character of this who comes into this barge life and not really knowing anything of the way they live. And you kind of get the sense that she marries Jean, uh, her character, Juliet, marries Jean just for the notion of the adventure that his life brings. You know, you get the notion she's never left the small town mm-hmm. and kind of wants to marry a man who will show her the world. And he has no interest in seeing the world. He just wants mm-hmm. to work on the barge. And it's, I, I think it's really the most moving and in some way, in emotionally realistic, let's say, a portrait of kind of that first year of, of marriage or living together in which you go in with all these expectations of a relationship, but you, when the other person kind of fails to fulfill them, you kind of lash out in these weird ways and you do things you don't mean, you say things you don't mean, um, but you're still connected in a way. And this film is really, I think, about... Uh, in, we haven't really talked about the body in relation to Vigo's work, which is very important. He had a real appreciation for the human body. And this film is kind of about the limitations I think of the physical world and the constant desire to transcend them. You get scenes late in the film where they seem kind of connected. The two characters seem connected spiritually, even though they're separated uh, physically and this constant notion that the space between them cannot be completely bridged. Um, I I don't know if this is all too esoteric. Like I said, I (laughs) I have so many disparate thoughts on this film that are, are maybe in conflict, but I think that's part of the film's appeals. There's so much in the film that, kind of works against itself and works for itself and it kind of moves in and out and never really settles. And I've, I mean, I've watched this film a dozen times and I'm, I'm still realizing new things about it. I think there's so many mm. nooks and crannies to it. Yeah. I think I've seen it maybe four times as, as but uh, like you, I, I, I keep coming back to different things. Yeah. It, it definitely a tale about relationships. Yeah. Uh, guys, you know, only make one life change at once. Don't get married and then go live on a barge. <laughs> <laughs> but uh good idea yeah it, it's it's a beautiful film i scott you i think you you summarized it eloquently um and i, I it's also a tragic film because like you mentioned it, it was a, a sacrifice uh, one thing i do remember from and it might have been the criterion supplement it, it's been a little while since I, I watched it but um i think it was michelle simone was um reflecting on it and they basically said that they improvised the entire script uh so yeah you know, even though the the script was basically a template for them to do what they wanted, and so they, you know, they, Vigo and Simone and and Parlo and and so forth created this world. Um, so it's it, even though I think he showed his chops as a filmmaker for the in the first three films, it's almost kind of a happy accident too. Everything just kind of came together, and that includes you know the tragedy of his his poor health and uh, that he he gave everything to this film and it it might have killed. He he never actually saw the finished film. 
uh, is because mm-hmm. w- weren't there a couple shots? Yeah, there were a couple shots that uh, that they finished after he had passed. So, yeah, I think it's beautiful. Well, there were a couple shots that uh, they finished without him, but he did see uh, uh, that initial finish cut that I referred to. Um, okay. But kind of as soon as it started to get edited down, you know, there was no question that he was right incapacitated and incapable of contributing to it. Yeah, he and that might have killed him too if uh, if he'd yeah. seen. Uh, he probably would have been yeah. horrified. Um, so, <laughs> and I think it's worth mentioning that he. You know his films were not uh, relevant. He's in all the filmmakers we're going to talk about. He's sort of the outlier because he was unknown until and really rediscovered after the war, and then he became uh, a huge fixture on the French New Wave. You mentioned Rivet uh, with his improvisation. I mean, Truffaut was a huge fan of his as well. Uh, I think Godard was. I think all of them really were. Um, so, but he was forgotten for many many years. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, like I said, there were a, kind of attempts right off the bat to revitalize La Talente, um, but for some reason they never made it outside these kind of very tight circles of French film fans. Mm-hmm. There was the feeling, uh, they talk about that in the book, of even in England, which is very close to France geographically, uh, there was a notion that the French had forgotten him, which they, they hadn't entirely, but for some reason, they, mm-hmm. whatever efforts were being made never really kind of hit the, the popular uh, cinema circles until yeah much later yeah probably just kind of gradually faded and then with him not around to prop up his work uh, that probably didn't help as well yeah his wife tried to kind of create a uh, kind of foundation a, a venue for his work to live on but she you know her health was they met in a sanatorium so her health right. in the beginning was not great either and she was t- horribly depressed over his passing she tried to kill herself from the moment he died in fact Mm. um and so she wasn't in a tremendous position emotionally or physically to kind of uh, mount that sort of work it's a tragic story but a beautiful story in a way so he left these these four films for us and uh and influenced many many um actually a whole movement if if you want to go that far with the french new wave yeah yeah, one one disc. <laughs> you can catch them all. You can watch them all in about three hours. So. Yep. Well worth your time. That was uh, Jean Vigo, and uh, that was our French series from the 1930s. Uh, in in a nutshell, really giving us a, a um, you know, intro to 1930s French cinema and talking about uh, some of the the big directors, the movements that influenced it, and uh, a couple of. Uh, early directors in the in the movement. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, yeah. we we did promise recommended films. I think the, uh, the that Latalant is a, a no brainer and zero to conduit for me. Any others from this series you'd recommend people watch? Um, I mean, I think certainly so. think all of Vigo's work is is worth checking out. I mean, mm-hmm. it's all on Hulu, so it's easy to get to at least until Filmstruck takes it all away. So. <laughs> Right. Like we said, we can you can watch it in evenings and make an evening of it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I, I liked Crinkle Bell quite a bit. Um, and with, based on what you guys said, the uh, La Grand Jour and Carnival in Flanders sound like standout films. Yeah, yeah. Carnival in Flanders is easy uh, to you know to easy to recommend, easy to watch, and it's on it is on Hulu and La Grand Jour. If you can, if you're Region B DVD, it's definitely worth your time. And I would recommend a Mother uh, Visage d'Enfant. Um, and uh, and there's probably some silent films. I guess Napoleon is the uh, the obvious one, uh, and maybe Unchain Andalou. Any others for the surrealist or any other expressionist films you guys would recommend? Or impressionist, excuse me. Uh, what is the Jean Epstein films that's in the Master of Cinema collection? Uh, Cour Fidel. Cour Fidel. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. 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 
All right. Well, this has been a great time. So uh, where can people find you, Scott? Uh, on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow or at Criterion Cast, where we're podcasting about the collection, of course, and <laughs> I'm writing articles and all that. And then at BattleshipPretension.com, where I'm going through the films of Eric Romare uh, very slowly, but very surely. Uh, I'll be writing about A Good Marriage next. Yeah, I do like your um, the way you talk about you have that little column about L.A. in the, the films. I, I... Yeah, we just started up kind of the report uh, yeah. kind of keeping track of the various rep screenings around L.A., which is a lot of fun. That's neat and, and very uh, makes me very envious. So thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad somebody's envious. In L.A., we're always envious of New, you know, New York or Paris or something. Yeah, but we do have it pretty good here. You do. Yeah. Nice. And you've been continuing your Bergman series, uh, the most recent uh, episode 175, uh, Smiles of a Summer Night. Yeah, Good that was podcast the conclusion of there. the summer with Bergman. And so next we're moving on to another depressed, depressing <laughs> uh, director with Mizuguchi. Mizuguchi. Doing, uh, nice. Story of Last Chrysanthemums. Yeah, looking forward to that. Perfect. And uh, yeah, we, we did want to mention too, uh, just you know, some of the sources for some of our, uh, our research. Um, there's the uh, Republic of Images. That's a history of French filmmaking. Alan Williams, um, also the um, French cinema from the beginnings to the present, and uh, the Jean Vigo uh, biography, I believe it is. Yeah, it's and just called Jean Vigo, which is a huge bother. But uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who's the and, author? Uh, Sal- Salas was it? Uh, his last name is Gomez. Unfortunately, the copy of the book I have doesn't give his first name. It's but it's P. E. Salas Gomez. So hopefully mm. that'll be enough to find it. Okay. Yeah. That's I I, I made my way through about halfway through. So um, it was. Yeah, it's a really well excellent done. biography. And yeah, it gave me a lot of nice. dimensions to Vigo I hadn't known before. A little bit from film art and introduction to the almost textbook from Bordwell and Thompson. Mm-hmm. So where can folks find you, Aaron, online? Uh, a West 505 on Twitter and uh, I'm, I'm tweeting again so there you go <laughs> there we go um, I'm Mark Herney H-U-R-N-E at Mark Herney and uh, Letterbox. you can find Criterion Close-Up at Criterion CU on Twitter CriterionCloseUp.com and uh, Facebook cl- slash Criterion Close-Up as we mentioned at the top would love to hear some uh, favorite films uh, anything that we, we got wrong <laughs> mm-hmm. feel free to, uh, to send us an update uh, any thoughts on the show the movement uh, particular films would love to get some feedback feedback at CriterionCloseUp.com and uh, next up, uh, so we're doing this as a monthly series. So our next up, our next episode for the French series from 1930s will be uh, Early Renoir. So um, Bebe, La Chienne, Voodoo Save from Drowning, Day in the Country, maybe Tony, some good um, watching there if you want to get caught up. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then uh, next our, week is Jarmouche. Yeah, yeah, switching it up a little bit. We'll hit uh, Mystery Train, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, Jim Jarmusch films. So look forward to that That, next week. That sounds French. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to Criterion Close-Up.